Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we are going to talk about the decision maker of your emotional brain, which is the amygdala. (laughs) This guy is tiny, but oh, so mighty. And I know I referenced the amygdala probably more than once because (laughs) between talking about the the wise owl or the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system or the barking dog. And within that, the amygdala, uh, it's like the three primary things that come up in my discussions, talking, work, all things, emotional brain, but we're going to actually dig into this and take a microscopic look at it because it's a really important part of emotional regulation. And also because it's probably my favorite area to talk about because it's so fascinating I mean, think about emotional decision maker (laughs) who wouldn't like to control the emotional decision maker of your brain. So think about it this way. Have you ever encountered situations where your usual coping mechanisms couldn't control your response to stress? Or you had some moments that you felt really triggered or they kind of triggered these old past negative events to come up in your mind again. And then usually in response to that stress response activated. And then you feel this onset of symptoms usually, or could be maybe depending on who you are and how your own system works, it could be a shortness of breath. It could be feelings of anxiety. It could be like your heart starting to race. That is your amygdala in action. So what does this thing look like? It is inside your limbic area. So if you are listening to previous episodes or go back to our blog posts, there's lots of, there are lots of um, episodes, posts, visuals, and all of these things, but right in the central part of your brain, it is the limbic area and the limbic area's emotional control center. And there are all these awesome components of the limbic area. One of which is the amygdala and and you can actually amygdala because there are two of them and they are two little almond shaped nuclei (laughs) situated smack in the middle of the emotional brain or central part of the brain. So think about, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie inside out, but I think of this as like, oh, it's like the command center. The amygdala is the command center of the emotions. And it makes sense that it lies like perfectly central in your, your brain. But this guy's job is to protect you at all costs. And they can even mistake stress 
like daily stress as an actual threat to your body, to your system, to your brain. And whether it is misinterpreting <laughs> your stress or as an actual stressor um, or even a traumatic event, it can become so activated that it prevents your prefrontal cortex, your wise owl, your thinking brain from doing its job or from being able to think. And, and sometimes in people, the emotional part of the brain, the limbic area gets so overly activated that, that even the communication part of the brain, which is in your prefrontal cortex shuts off the Broca center. So it's fascinating how all these systems are interconnected, but why would our fancy schmancy brains do something like that? Well, that's because the amygdala was designed again for safety and your brain's primary concern. Your brain was developed around keeping us safe, keeping the human population going. And it's responsible for that fight, flight, freeze, fawn response activation. So during those stressful moments, we often, and especially kids, get disconnected from our rational, logical thinking, and we shift to impulsional, impulsive reactions um, like fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And we lose connection with that upstairs brain, like memory, uh, self-regulation, the ability to like rationalize and communicate. So we have a difficult time focusing, controlling impulses, remembering instructions, making good decisions. And that's really, really important to know. Because when we face strong emotions, anger, fear, frustration, even the amygdala believes that we are in some sort of danger, even if it's just perceived danger and it sounds the alarm and kicks all those systems into gear. So when you have kids in particular, and some adults too, uh, actually probably, probably right now, a lot of adults, in these stressful moments where their amygdala is activated and they're disconnected from the rational thinking, they do, they do impulsive things. They hit, they scream, they kick. They, but these are not logical, rational, malicious choices. It is the body's brain's way of, of kind of saving itself. And it seems odd that you, you know, a kid who's spitting or kicking or hitting or whatever to save themselves, but it is their internal response, which comes out externally and in a behavior, uh, that they don't have complete control over. It's more of like an unconscious subconscious reactionary response that, that they can eventually learn to maybe manage and control better, but don't ha have control over yet. So we, you know, we're so quick to want to stop the behavior, change the behavior, like punishing kids, like we're punishing them for things that they cannot fully control yet. So it's just something to think about. Imagine what it would be like if you were a child who didn't have a fully developed thinking brain, which they don't until they're late 20, uh, I'd say early twenties, mid twenties, even some late twenties depending on who you are and how you develop and how many toxins you're exposed to. So children who don't have fully developed thinking brains, which most children, hello, behavior problems, because you're not able to have your thinking brain override your emotional brain, which is what we adults hopefully by now have learned to do. So it gets super hard to make smart decisions, the right decisions, logical decisions, and speak rationally when your body is forcing you to bolt, to fight, to freeze. Right. So in a lot of ways, it's not anyone's fault when this happens, but how can we rise above it and practice emotional regulation so that we don't lose control of our thinking brain 
and we don't let this amygdala guy hijack the rationality that we know exists in our brains and bodies. Well, I'd say two things. One, some things that will help to like deactivate the amygdala movement, breathing, human touch, breath work, all those things. But simultaneously, we want to work on calming that down and deactivating it. But you also want to strengthen the prefrontal cortex. You also want to think, strengthen the thinking brain. And if you do that, it means the amygdala has less chance of hijacking it. So what would those things be? Mindfulness, meditation, yoga, stretching, all the things that help you to slow down and think. It's really those mindfulness activities that um, end up battling against and soothing even the amygdala. And, you know, I've, I've even read studies about people practicing mindfulness and, and like the activation of these parts of the brain, how in scans, the highlighted parts, or even the sizing of these parts of the brain. Um, so there's a lot of scientific research behind this. Usually people who practice a lot of mindfulness have smaller amygdala, amygdala eyes. Um, and we want that. We, you know, the amygdala was designed to keep us safe and it does, we need it for times when we are actually in serious danger because we want to freeze or fight or fawn or whatever we need to do to, to stay safe. But in today's world with all of our micro stressors and our emotional stressors and our generational patterns and traumas, we want that guy to shrink a little bit because it's overstimulated. It's overgrown in a lot of people and a lot of kids, especially. So finding ways to shrink that guy down by practicing mindfulness meditation, and also finding ways to kind of soothe it with breathing and uh, touch and um, movement. So I'm not going to talk anymore about the amygdala because it's a lot about the amygdala and it's a lot of information very quickly, but I do encourage you to go back to previous episodes or really to go, go look at the blog that talks about the amygdala because it can show you where it's at and go into a little bit more detail about what this thing does. So today we're going to close with our listener question, which is what do we do when a child is refusing to do schoolwork or even refusing to go to school? For me, like, when there's a strong emotional response to something, you know, school works maybe a little bit more regular to have a strong no to because it's maybe something kids aren't motivated by and, and rightly so. I mean, some of the schoolwork that kids are expected to do is not motivating and we don't explain to them why we have to do it or why this particular activity or the importance behind it. So there's no motivation to do it. But not going to school, that one's always a little bit alarming to me because if a child's having a strong reaction to going to school, then there's something else going on there. There is an unmet need there is resistance and there's something under that. So I'm going to try and you know build the relationship or use the relationship I have to figure out why that is. Is it lack of motivation? They aren't enjoying what's in class. Is it they're bored? Is it that there there's someone that's making fun of them and they're being bullied? What, what is causing the resistance to wanting to go to school? And then using that information for both schoolwork and going to school to find motivators. What, what will motivate a child to want to go to school? And then I'm probably going to end with, depending on the age of the child, and I, I do this even with three-year-olds, it looks very different from a three-year-old to a 13-year-old, but a problem-solving conversation, four steps. And while I'm doing this, 
I will typically make sure the child of any age has their hands occupied. It could be a game. It could be an arts activity. It could be blocks, building, whatever it is, but their hands are occupied so that their mind can be attentive to me and not lose focus. But four steps to this conversation. And I do write the answers down to this, I physically write them down. Um, you felt, so I state how I think they felt. I felt, what is the problem? State the problem. The problem is solutions. Let's come up with some solutions together that solve this problem. So could be something like, I feel like there's a bigger reason why you don't want to go to school. I feel like you're, you're not enjoying it. And it's making you really unhappy. Validate them, diffuse them, state my feelings. I am concerned that you won't be able to see your friends or that you won't be able to be involved in your supporting stuff or that you'll miss really important information that you'll need later in life. So the problem is, and whatever the problem may be, if it's schoolwork, not going to school, um, the problem is you know, when, when we're six to 18, we have to go to school during the day. And I understand that it doesn't feel good right now. Solutions. Okay. So you're not feeling like you want to go to school right now. So what, what can we do to solve this problem together? And then come up with solutions, right? All solutions down, even if they're not ones you will end up choosing, because it's still a solution to the problem. It's just one they ultimately share that you probably won't want to use. All right. That's it for today's listener question. Let's wrap up the show with our try to home tip. Nine minutes with your kid a day. So I know our direction, our direction, <laughs> our intention is being pulled in all different directions. And, you know, devices are becoming things that are parenting and babysitting kids these days. And it's so important that we carve out just nine minutes a day to spend with our kid and no phones, no tech, no distractions, full attention for nine minutes a day. Scientific research recently came out. So it's all they really need. Nine minutes devoted, undivided attention a day will fill up their relationship attachment need and help them to develop um, healthy relationships in the future. So I think we can all carve out nine minutes a day because I think they're like 1,440 minutes a day. A lot of minutes in the day. Um, nine minutes isn't that much um, when we compare it to all the minutes we have in a day. So that's it for today's episode of Returning to Us podcast. Remember our tried at home tip, which is spend nine minutes of undivided attention with your child every single day. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions on a future show, email me at podcast at thebehaviorhub.com, or you can even shoot me a text 717-693-7744. And remember to lock in what you learned by applying it right away. Go do this put a reminder somewhere, leave a comment below on what you're going to do next. So I can hold you accountable <laughs> and subscribe to future episodes to learn more ways to hack your brain and your emotions until next episode. I am Lauren Spiegelmeyer and thank you for joining me. Mm -hmm.